while, so hope you're ready for an hour. <laughs> it's okay, Jan is in the front, she'll not let me go for an hour. Nor will my wife. It's great to be here. We're going to uh, continue on with the series that we've been doing, um, Who is My Neighbour? And uh, as I've been praying about this, uh, what I'm going to bring this morning is uh, I'm trying to try, try to be practical with uh, stuff that... Uh, stuff that I'm working on, stuff that I'm learning, working through, and stuff that God, I feel, is laying on my heart. And so I'm, uh, the, the, the title of, of my talk this morning, that's a bit echoey, change it. The, the title of my sermon this morning is, Who Do You Think You Are? I was going to walk up the aisle to the Spice Girls song, you know, the, Who do you think you are? Do a bit of dancing in church, but then I thought somebody might um, revoke my eldership if I'd done that. Not Neville, I think you'd be happy enough for that, wouldn't you? Me dancing up the aisle singing Who Do You Think You Are by Spice Girls. There would have been a reason for it, because I am going to include it uh, later on in what I'm speaking about. But uh, it's a very serious question, who do you think you are? And the reason I'm asking that question is because if we want to be good neighbours, if we want to know who our neighbour is, we need to understand who we are first before we can understand who they are, before we can help them, before we can bring them up to where we're supposed to be at as Christians, because we're supposed to have everything figured out, which most of us don't. All of us don't. I certainly don't. But the difference is, if we know who we are, then we have a really good foundation. And so that's where I want to start off this morning. And as I was praying about this this week, um, what I want to really focus on this morning, and that is the word think. Who do you think you are? The power of your thinking, what shapes your thinking. And so um, thoughts... The thoughts that go through our head and that are processed through our head are actually who we are. Our mind is a very, very powerful thing. And so what is shaping your mind? What is shaping your thoughts? Who controls your mind? Who controls your thoughts? Uh, What do you say to yourself when nobody else is looking? What do you say to yourself in the mirror? That would be a funny thing to record, wouldn't it? You're gorgeous. I know you say you're gorgeous. Somebody has to think it, Ronnie. You and your mother. And Carolyn. <laughs> and Nicola does too. Was, that's not very good for me if you think you're gorgeous. <laughs> but what do you say to yourself honestly when nobody else is looking? Because I really believe that we all think the devil's coming with a pitchfork and his suit on, but he's coming in subtle tactics. And I believe one of the subtle tactics is you not fully grasping who you are in your mind and what he wants to do with your mind. And so he wants to manipulate it, he wants to fill it, he wants to distract you, he wants to scare you, he wants to confuse you, he wants to content you, he wants to blind you, and so on and so on and so on. We go through the whole dictionary. And I want to ask you this morning, what consumes your mind? What's that thing that keeps you up at night? What's that thing that keeps poking at you? What does the devil keep throwing in your face on a daily basis? that just as you're about to get to that place with the Lord that you've been longing for or have that intimate moment with the Father, that the devil throws this thing in your face to pull you right back to where he wants you to be. What keeps you awake at night? And so all that to say, I want to start off with a verse this morning in 1 Corinthians 3.16. I'm going to read it from a few uh, different uh, translations just till we get the grasp of it. And I believe this is the the key to thinking. This is the key to understanding who you are. 1 Corinthians 3.16. And the context of it is that Paul's coming in to the Corinthians. And he says, it's that famous verse about drinking milk. Do you know what? I thought you'd been eating solid food by now, but you're still drinking milk. It's like Sarah. She's been drinking milk and not wanting anything else for months. But all of a sudden, she started to want to eat. She's got the McBride. uh, She's got the McBride mentality of eating, thankfully now. But he comes to the people in Corinthians and he's saying to them, listen, you are no further on than you were before. I walk into this church and I cannot see the difference between you and I can't see the difference between the society and you. There's no difference. You should have been by now eating solid food, but you're still looking for milk. And so he finishes off in verse 16 with this, this provoking question. Don't you understand that together... You form a temple to the living God and his spirit lives among you. I love what the ESV says. Do you not know that you are God's temple? So do you not know who you are? Who do you think 
you are. If you really truly understand who you are and what Jesus done on the cross, things would be different. 1 Corinthians in the ESV says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Do you not realize your job in this city? Do you not realize the impact that you can have in this city if you truly, truly understand who you are? In the message it says this, You realize, don't you, that you are the temple of God and God himself is present in you. No one will get by with vandalizing God's temple. You can be sure of that God's temple is sacred and you, remember, are the temple. In the Passion Translation, I can't go by without reading that out, it says, don't you realize that together you've become God's inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and the Spirit of God makes his permanent home in you. Now, if someone desecrates God's inner sanctuary, God will desecrate him, for God's inner sanctuary is holy, and that is exactly who you are. And we could go all into that, but just to point it out, this is talking in the plural, so it's talking to us as a church. It's not saying if you sin, God's going to come in and he's going to give off to you and he's going to... This is talking to us as a church saying, I take this so seriously. This is my bride. And if you do something that harms the name of my church, of my bride and me, I take it very, very seriously. That's a serious warning to start off with. We could have a whole sermon on that. But I want to focus on verse 16. It's saying to us as a people of God, you are the temple. And then, if we want to bring it to the individual, later on in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, and uh, apt of what I just said of the Super Bowl, this uh, whole chapter is about sexual immorality. But at the end of it, he asks, asks that provoking question again. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. The Passion Translation says, Have you forgotten that your body is now the sacred temple of the Spirit of Holiness who lives in you? You don't belong to yourself any longer, for the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside your sanctuary. You were God's expensive purchase. And it goes on to say, Use your body to bring glory to God. And why am I saying all that? What's that got to do with thinking? What's that got to do with being a good neighbor? And it's this. Paul is using um, imagery, like pregnant imagery, to say that we are pregnant with the presence of the Holy Spirit. As an individual and as a church, we, car- we carry him within us. And what he's saying in this chapter, in chapter 3, is he's asking the question, I think it's in verse 10, what are you constructing with? And this is the reason I'm pulling this verse out. Because the foundation, that what you're building with, has to be compatible with the foundation. Now the foundation is this. If you know Jesus, if you've asked him into your life, your foundation is Jesus Christ crucified. Your foundation is solid. It's not going to move. It's not going to falter. It's not going to fail. But here's where we fail. It's okay to fail. Here's where we mess up. Like the people in Corinthians, their church... Their body was made of, I get it here, mud, hay, and wood. It wasn't going to endure. And so this morning, there's lots of physical things we could talk about with building the body and the body. But this morning, I want to ask you, with regards to your mind and your thinking, what are you building upon this foundation? Because the foundation is firm and secure. It's yes and amen. But what are you building? How are you building your mind? And I want to look at some practical steps this morning on how we need to be seriously thinking about what is going into our minds and what is coming out. And so I want to ask you this morning, how are you building your thought life? How are you building the wisdom that goes in here, the decisions that you make? What is it being built with? How you think as an individual will affect us collectively when we come together on a Sunday, when we come together on a Wednesday, when we meet with other people from the church. If we don't learn how to think properly on the foundations that we've been given by ourselves, then when we come together, we will not be as effective for the kingdom. And so he starts with a provoking question, do you not know who you are? And it's so much more. He's asking, do you not know who your father is? The last time I preached here, I told you about a time that I'd done something, I don't know if I told you what it was, so I'll not tell you again, something that was quite bad as a pastor's son. And I remember it was my mum or dad. They said, do you not realize whose son you are? And I believe in this question, there's so many things wrapped up in it. 
He's asking, have you seriously considered the implication of who you are as God's people in this city? And I want to ask you that question as you think about your thinking. Have you considered whose son, whose daughter you are? In this town, in this church, in your home, in your work, do you consider who you are walking into that place with a pride of, I am the son or daughter of the King of Kings, but also, do you know what? Things have to be different as I walk into this place because of what I carry. And so he, uh, Paul in the First Corinthians, he uses that statement 10 times. And I believe by the end it was kind of like, do you not know who you are? Do you seriously not understand or comprehend by now with everything that I've poured into you, everything that I've prayed over you, everything I've demonstrated among you, do you not seriously know who you are? Because I believe, going off notes, that we are coming to the point where it's like, come on, guys, just get this. Get rid of all the nonsense, okay? It's okay to struggle. It's okay to... I'm not saying it's okay to sin, but it is because God forgives you. That's what grace is for. Don't get that snippet on YouTube out of context. But we're struggling around with so much to do with our thinking because the devil wants us there. But God is saying, I've given grace. I've accomplished this on the cross. Just look to me because there's so much that I want to do with you to fulfill your life, to change people's lives like this life thing we're doing. There's so many people out there desperately uh, asking questions and they don't have the foundation that you have to build on. And so Gordon Fee says this, not the Torah, not circumcision, not the Sabbath keeping, but God's presence first in the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem alone distinguishes God's people from all others. For Paul, therefore, the temple imagery first echoes the Old Testament, but now that he is present among his people in Corinth by his spirit, the believing community themselves are God's temple in Corinth. And they didn't understand that. You are God's temple in Rich Hill, in Dungannon, Zambia, in Portadown, wherever it is. You are God's temple. And if that is what shapes our thinking, then who we are as neighbors starts to mean a whole lot more. Knowing who you are starts with knowing that God dwells inside you. Not just as a wee airy-fairy concept, but actually my goodness. The Holy of Holies is within me. It's very appropriate that Neville started off with the veil was torn too. As the veil was torn too, we had access to where the high priest used to only get to go. We could hear the voice. We could hear the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking over us, speaking about us, telling us where to go, what to do, encouraging us, building us up. So in light of this, Paul was calling them to think differently. He was asking them to think about the fact that they were an alternative. They were an alternative narrative. How many people do you know that they need to be told a different story about their life? We've been talking about Craig Avon for ages, the field city. How many people need to be told, no, this is not how it's meant to be? How many people in the way they're thinking and the depression that they're in? We'll have to keep with them. I'm trying to keep with them in because this could be so much wider. How many people need to be told a different story than they're being told by the people that are supposed to love them? By the medication that they're on, by the doctors that are telling them, by the people maybe that don't like them, but they want them for what they have. People need to be told a different narrative, and the Corinthians didn't get it. They were supposed to be a contrast to the world around them. The world was full of immorality, greed, anger, lust, but we're supposed to be full of love, compassion, and all the other things, patience, kindness, forgiveness. And so in our thinking this morning, I want to ask you, is there a contrast in the way you think about these things and how you show these things when you go out into society? And Paul goes on to describe the temple as holy, a place set apart for God. And so I want to ask you this morning, and this is a hard one, as we think about the things we say, we do, the things we think about, how we communicate, are we thinking, my goodness, I am actually the Holy of Holies? I am carrying the very presence of God within me. Does that describe the way that 
I and you think, or you and I, does that shape your daily thought pattern? I know this is, this is hard. I, I'm not getting it. I'm just asking myself these questions. So this morning, as we consider being a good neighbor, based on how we think and based on what we're building our thinking around, I want to look at some practical steps. And I heard a great thing this week that I want us to live more like a river than a reservoir. A river keeps flowing and keeps giving, but a reservoir holds it all in. And so I believe God wants us in the overflow of who he's telling us we are to live that out. And so the, the definition for knowing is to be sure and certain. So as we start this this morning, I want to ask you, are you sure and certain that you know who you are? And really all you need to know is you're a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ, of the Father. And everything else needs to be shaped around that identity. What he speaks over you, what he says over you, what he promises you in the word of God should shape your thinking, not what your mind tells you on a bad day, not what the TV or the magazines you read tell you, not even what your loved ones tell you, but what the word of God and the spirit of God speak over you. Those are the things to build your life and your mind upon. And so the first one, and I believe, I'm not saying it's the most important, but it ranks highly up there. The first practical thing is guarding your self-talk. So what's your inner dialogue about yourself? Are you constantly putting yourself down? Are you constantly negative about yourself? We don't need to go into it. You know yourself right now, the things that you say to yourself in that private moment. And that's where the devil wants you to be negative, to be down, to be deconstructive instead of constructive. And so I want to ask you this morning to learn to become your own encourager and to learn to become your own builder. To be in all seriousness like Ronnie, because he's a man I know who is, walks into the room and he's like, I am the best looking man here. <laughs> it's not cocky. Maybe it is a wee bit. But it's confidence in actually knowing who he is and building on that solid foundation. It also comes from having a wife that loves him and shows him. It's another conversation. But we should be confident, not cocky, in who Jesus says we are. And that should come out in how we speak about ourselves, how you encourage yourself. We're going to go a wee bit more into it. Let me show you this video. Have you got it up there? start maybe but once you get it up make it big there I cross over the road in front of the bus and got hit by an oncoming car and took the full hit with my head. When I was taking my first steps, I couldn't wait. I wanted to run. I was determined to motivate the young athletes to become better versions of themselves. On the 20th of November last year, we, we had a letter come through the door from the um, Cabinet Office with Charlie being awarded an, an MBE. 
um, which is almost unheard of for a 21-year-old. That shows if this young man can get an MBE at 21 years of age after everything he's been through, anything truly is possible. So you know where I'm showing you that. Never give up. Yes, that's it. It's good timing. I just want to pull out the, the importance of his inner voice. And so he could have had a pity party for himself and probably not done anything else. But his inner voice said, you know what, I want to continue with my passion. And one of the devil's greatest things is he wants to rob you of what God has for you with your inner dialogue of how you speak to yourself. And bringing it back to the series of being a good neighbor or who is my neighbor. We can't be a good neighbor. And uh, I know there's a, a well-known lady speaker says that if you can't love yourself, you can't love others. It is so true. And so if you can't learn to encourage yourself, how on earth can you truly encourage somebody else or build someone else up? Even from the Bible, you look at Joseph sold by his brothers, wrongly imprisoned, um, Lots of stuff happened, Joseph. But in, in chapter 39 of Genesis, it says this, but the Lord showed favor on him. And I believe that that favor was a good bit to do with Joseph's attitude and his thinking of who he was and who God had called him to be. And so how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself when you look in the mirror? What do you say to yourself about your physical body? What do you say to yourself about stuff that you've done that week or things that you've failed on? Maybe... Um, Maybe you see signs of your mum or dad, and maybe that's not a good thing for you. Or maybe it's a good thing, or maybe it is a good thing. Maybe all you see is failures, scars, battle wins. Or maybe you're like uh, we talked about, maybe you're full of joy and confident and overflowing. And that's where we want to get to. Not a false sense of that, but the realistic view of what the Father speaks over us because of the firm foundations that he has set below us. So to be a good neighbor, I want you to guard your self-talk. A lot of these this morning we could go lots more into, but I don't really have time. So, uh, Number two is stop comparing yourself to others. This is a massive problem in Northern Ireland. Stop comparing yourself to others. Galatians 6, verse 4 and 5 says this in the message. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given. And then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. I love that verse in the message. So two things happen when you compare yourself. Number one, you compare yourself and think, do you know what? They are so much better than me. And you feel down and discouraged. The other one is you look at them and you think, do you know what? I am so much better than them. And you become cocky and arrogant. And neither are good. We're not to compare ourselves to each other. That famous song by Spice Girls, if you don't know it, it's because you're not old enough. Do, you, do any of you girls know it? No. Said, who do you think you are? Type in Who Do You Think You Are by Spice Girls and have a great afternoon listening to that album, but don't watch the movie. But in that uh, song, the first verse says this. Yes, I watched the movie. The race is on to get out of the bottom. The top is high, so your roots are forgotten. Giving is good as long as you're getting. What's driving you, it's ambition and betting. I said, who do you think you are? The world says compare yourself because you have to have what they have. You have to look like they have. You have to think like they have. But the word says completely different. Brian Heasley says this in his book, Gate Crashers. God isn't so much into one model, but into a life of individual interruptions. He doesn't like doing things the same way every time. And so think about the Battle of Jericho that we sang. Well, we didn't sing about it. You practiced that song, but you didn't sing it. That only happened once where they walked around and sang and shouted a wall and it fell down. Because God loves being creative and unique. And he's done that with you and me. So each of us have our unique stories, our individual stories of the great things that God has given us to do, that he's planned ahead, that he sat down and he was like, right, I've got this job. I'm going to create human to do that tick and I'm going to watch as he comes into fullness of life and knowing me and he starts to discover the things that I've given him that he's good at and he loves and he's passionate about 
Stop comparing yourself to others. Number three, have an attitude of gratitude. And this was talked about in the prayer meeting on Friday morning because I thought this is an old school slogan. Everybody knows it. But th- twice, three times in the prayer meeting on, uh, on Friday morning, this was talked about. And so I believe again in Northern Ireland, and I'm sorry for poking in Northern Ireland, maybe Scottish, Scottish are the same. We are so negative, negative Nellies. Like we're so negative about everything and especially with our minds about ourselves and our self-talk. But we have to have an attitude of gratitude. Focus on thankfulness. Here's the thing. You usually get what you expect. So I've started always expecting for the best. Do you know that? Have you, re- have you seen that with people that are always, oh, it's so bad, it's not going to work. It doesn't work for them. And so I've decided that I am always going to expect the best because actually my solid foundation, Christ crucified, tells me who I am. And so I'm going to expect the best and I'm going to go towards the best and I'm going to live my life in that manner and that way. And so our greatest opposition to being a good neighbor is ourselves because usually we want to serve and preserve. We don't want to give so much away because we think we might need it or we don't want to get too involved because it means, you know what, oh my goodness, we're going to have to go be a part of that family when there's problems and they're going to call us and ask for lifts and they're going to have an attitude of gratitude. And do you know what the opposite of gratitude is? Grumbling. And pick a Northern Ireland day. It is another top ten. For Who agrees with me? What about other cultures in here? Are we good at grumbling? We're so good at grumbling. And uh, I talked about a verse last week. Exodus 15. Um, if I can find it here. Exodus 15 is the first song in the Bible. You've heard me over and over. I love this song. The song of Moses. It says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled the horses and the riders. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God. I will praise him. My father, I will exalt him. The Lord is our warrior, Yahweh, in his greatness and your majesty. And it goes on and on and on. It's like, oh, you're so amazing. You're so great. You're so amazing, Right? And I thought it was actually Exodus 16, but actually in Exodus 15, three days later, then the people complained and turned against Moses, what are we going to drink? We're thirsty. Three days later, after the greatest victory that the man has ever seen, our minds start to complain and start to forget and start to grumble. And in verse 26 of Exodus 15, it says, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord and your your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who healed you. If you just listen to me, he says, things will go so much better. If you just listen and do and act. But then in chapter 16 of Exodus... These words, a month later, I think it's a month, is it, or three months? Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. Really, they were complaining about God. And this is the famous scripture in, uh, in chapter 16 where the Lord then provides manna. He provides them food. But in chapter 16, the word grumble occurs nine times. Nine times the people grumbled a month after the Lord opened the Red Sea and they marched through. Remember, it was flood season. So I don't know what it looked like, but probably not like the movie shows it. But miles of water probably either side or one side. And these people were walking through. It should have been a mile wide of water, but it was completely bone dry. The children of Israel walked through it. And as soon as the last person from the children of Israel stepped out of that water, it came crashing down on their enemy. And one month later, all they needed was food. But yet they couldn't just trust in God. How many of us are so guilty of that? And so the key of grumbling is this, perception. When we grumble and when we complain, we lose perception of what's happening around us. We forget, do you know what, God's actually already done this. We forget actually, I had these thoughts and these feelings last week and they went away 
or I had these thoughts and feelings last week and I am sick of it. God, this is not who I am. Perception. Because you know what was happening? Israel were actually being tested because God wanted to grow their character. Because you know what was about to happen? He was about to give them the food of angels. He was about to bless them with manna from heaven. And it goes on that he brought them quail because they wanted meat. And he's just literally saying, all you have to do is ask. But I want you to remember my goodness and how I love you and how I fight for you on your behalf. And I want you to remember who you are. Because you know what happens with grumbling? Grumbling. Grumbling and bad moods are like a virus spread. When one person has it, then that doesn't take very long. But here's the thing. Do you know what? They were allowed to grumble. Can you imagine it? Millions of people walking through the desert, no food, no water. The kids are screaming. The wives are maybe screaming at the husbands. The cattle are dying, so there's going to be no food. Do you know what? It's okay to be in a bad mood sometimes. It's okay to feel a wee bit... But the difference is the perception of where you're at and who you're there with. And so they were okay to say, do you know what, God? We followed you out of Israel and we are hungry. The difference is, God, we followed you out of Israel. We're hungry. You've done it before. Will you do it again? And so we're moving into a place now where we need to understand how we think about what God is putting us into. If you're, not, if you're there because of your own stuff, you'll still get you out. But the thing is, you need to remember where you're at and who you're there with in the middle of that grumbling. Trusting God doesn't always mean understanding where you're at. And so it's an epidemic because really our tongues were created to praise, not to grumble. In Psalm 78, 11, I was reading it this week, and it, it broke my heart. It says this, that they forgot, the children of Israel, they forgot he had what he had done, the great wonders that he had shown them. And so I also want to warn you with your thinking and what comes out of your tongue as you start to think it, that the way you think, the way you process, and the way you communicate that will be passed from generation to generation. Neil last week said that he had it on his heart to break the family cycle of neg- negativity that, were, that was around us. And so if you do not learn how to think and and express it and communicate your displeasures or your annoyances, then I can see it in my boys already. Some They've got some of the good things, they've got some of the bad things. And you're sitting there going, my goodness, that's just what I do. I want you to do that. But it's going to be passed from generation to generation. Brian Simmons says this, one sight of glory will cure your grumbling. We know that when we're complaining and whining and inviting others to our pity party, we're not focused on the glory cloud that is above us and within us. He's talking about the context of um, the children of Israel being led by the cloud by day and the pillar by night, but also the fact that now we have the glory of God all around us and in us. If we can see his beautiful glory, full of all that we need and all that we want, we will be delivered from grumbling and we will come up and out of where we are uh, leaning on the beloved. And yesterday, I started randomly reading Second Chronicles 2, verse 20 to 21. And I want to I encourage you, if you're going through a hard time right now, if you're struggling with things, if you're struggling with stuff mentally, I want you to read Second Chronicles 20, the whole chapter, for a, a victory that is just amazing. But I want to read you these two verses. So the enemy was coming from all around. The Lord has spoken as the whole family gathered together, not just men. It says men, women, and children gathered together to seek the Lord because the leader said, we need to seek God. It was the first thing he'd done. And uh, when they came together, the Lord spoke, and he said, this is the battle plan. This is how you're going to defeat the enemy. You're going to sing. Can you imagine that? Put your swords down. So verse 21, after consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor, that this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. At that very moment, they began to sing and give praise. The Lord caused the armies of the, um, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. So what do I want to bring out here? Your tongue is meant for praise, not for grumbling and not to bring down. And I really believe that in this season, for a lot of us, that the key to changing our thinking, the key to the building blocks of our thinking, is learning how to praise. 
actually praise people, but learn how to praise the Father. It's getting ourselves into that place where whenever we are having a hard day, whenever we have tough decisions to make, like in this chapter, the first thing we do is turn to the Father. The first thing we start to do is praise God and start to recite the things that he has already done, the things that he has already blessed us with, with starting to be thankful and to praise him. And as we do that, I believe that the battlefield of the mind that's talked about in Joyce Meyer's book will start to change because we have an unfair advantage. Number four is this. Add value to others. And this is another one that we, I think culturally we are really, we find it really hard to get. And I've been reading through a book by um, John Maxwell. Um, I just finished it, thankfully. Actually, I wasn't reading. I was listening to it. It was 18 hours. Amy got some of it in the car. It was intense. But um, he has, in, in part of it, ways to win people. And I just, I'm not going to stop on them, but they're in the next slide. And I want to just read them out. And there's scriptures there to go with them if you want to ask at the end. But ways to win people, um, how to add value to them are this. Practice the 30-second rule. Within 30 seconds of meeting someone, why not encourage them? Why not bless them? Why not build them up? Let people know that you need them. When's the last time? I bet you we all have somebody in our life that if we didn't have them, we, couldn't, we could find it hard to live. Let people know that you need them and value them. Compliment people in front of people. That's a more American thing, isn't it? Um, sorry, Jesse. Give others a reputation to uphold. Say the right words at the right time. Encourage the dreams of others. Pass on credit to others. Offer your very best. Mine the gold of good intentions. Keep your eyes off the mirror. You're allowed to look at it and encourage yourself, but don't stay there too long. Do for others what they can't do for themselves. Listen with your heart. That's a good one. Don't listen to respond. Find the keys to their heart. Be the first to help. Add value to people. Remember a person's story. Tell a good story. Give with no strings attached. Learn your postman's name. And if you think about um, the Apostle Paul in his letters, he always remembers the names of the people that helping him and encouraging him, and he puts them in the letters. I think there's a real specific reason for that. Point out other people's strengths. Write notes of encouragement. We've been talking about this a lot lately, and I think this is very important, starting to actually write handwritten letters to people again. Handwritten notes. And help people win. I know it's some of it's a wee bit American, but... It's Super Bowl day. So. Number five is do the right thing even when it's hard. Second Timothy 2 verse 23 to 26 says this. Again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Do the right thing even when it's hard. So saying sorry when it's maybe not your fault. Forgiving someone that even to look at them, they're unforgivable. To say you're right. Even this, to say I love you. Who do you know in your life? And I really felt this one this morning as I was praying about it. Who do you really love but you find it really hard to tell them? And as we're thinking about these life seminars, who do you love? I know you love me, Johnny, looking at me like that. Who do you love that doesn't know Jesus that maybe telling them you love them could be the keys to them entering the kingdom? And doing the right thing, even when you know it's hard, I felt this this morning too, is responding to illogical thoughts. Maybe there's stuff going through your head that you know this is not right. This is not who I am. This, but you're continually fighting and is draining you. Know, <laughs> maybe now is the, right, the time to do that right thing that you know, to speak to the person that can help you. Or to stop thinking in that way. Number six is practice a small discipline daily in an area of your life. And that with thinking, this is really hard. So it's thinking even with who I am. And it's right, tomorrow 
I am not going to discourage myself like I usually do. Okay, tomorrow when I pray for patience and that time comes along, I am, even if it's two minutes of being patient, I'm going to do it. I'm going to encourage one person tomorrow. I'm going to say something nice to myself. You know, I started going to the gym. And they were keeping me going on Friday night because I came in the Nicola. I've only been there three times. But every time I come back, I go, can you see a difference? Can you see a difference? And she's like, you've only been once. It's not going to be doing it. But I feel different because I've been. And so for onlookers, that small thing doesn't, doesn't look too big. But for you, you know what that small thing actually is the start of something great. And so within your mind, I'm asking you to start something small, even practical. It might be a text to call, a conversation. It might be you're really stingy with this bad boy. And God's saying, I want you to give someone this tomorrow. It's starting small with these things. Number seven, celebrate the small victories. And so last week after Kelly got up, I told her off. And I said, no, you're doing something great. You're doing something that's impacting the kingdom. In Northern Ireland, we put ourselves down. And so instead of saying, I should have done this, I actually want you to start saying, do you know what, it's really good that I've done that. And tomorrow, I'm looking forward to doing it again. It's getting rid of the it's never good enough mentality. And it's being present today to make the right choices. So I want you to start celebrating small victories in your life because those small victories are what lead up to the large victories. We're nearly there. Number eight, have a, have a, a positive vision for your life. And believe that your life matters. So what do you value that inspires you? What do you love doing? And I'm not just talking about spiritual. What fills you up? What makes you a joyful person to be around? Like I love watching rugby. It fills me with joy. Especially yesterday in the last minutes of the Ireland game. My goodness, my heart rate. It was up to like 120 in this. It's okay for your whole life not, just, you know, not to be reading the Bible and praying. What, what fills you with joy? Who fills you with joy? Who makes you be a, a better you that you can be around? So what do you value? You need to start believing the promises that God speaks over you. Things that you read in the word about who you are. So when it says in Philippians, don't worry, but pray. Oh my goodness, how many of us actually, we know that verse. We know it, we know it in here, but we don't know it in here. And so the reason that he's given this and given us the spirit is so that we read it and we believe it and we put it into action and we live on the solid foundation that is Christ crucified as we build the structure of our thinking. And so I want you to do this. The things that God has spoken to you, maybe in prophetic words that you have tested and found true in the word of God that you read, hopefully on a daily basis, and in the spirit of God that speaks to you individually, I want you to declare, to declare those things. Get in front of the mirror. I got Nicola a new full-size mirror last week. She thinks I got it for myself since I started going to the gym, but it's not for her. And uh, it's okay to stand in front of the mirror and declare, I am beautifully and wonderfully made. He's seen me in my mother's womb. He has a plan and a purpose for me. I know it all sounds a wee bit. But do you know the difference it makes? Just to start to declare these things over yourself. So I want you to declare it. You don't have to look in the mirror if you're scared. Declare it. Read it. Write it. And share it. Not necessarily on Facebook, but actually and physically share with someone. Do you know what? I have this word that God spoke over me. And I think I, think I want to speak it over you. It's about who you are. It's about what the word says about you. You're going through a tough time. I want to speak Philippians over you. Don't worry, but come before him in prayer. Have a positive attitude for life. And it's not all airy-fairy. It's, what is it? It's basing it upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ crucified. Number nine. This is the last one. How am I doing? Number nine. Take responsibility for your own life and for your own thought pattern. And so as husbands or as wives, yes, we are responsible. But ultimately, you're responsible for your own thinking, your own mindset, what you're building it on, what you spend your time on. It's in your hands. And I want to tell you this morning that you have value and that you can make a difference. And so some people have said that we live in an entitlement generation, which I think we do a little bit. But I want to encourage you this morning to stop waiting for others to tell you what to do and to seize the moment that you were born for. 
to seize that moment that he created you for something, not created something for you. And so it's hard when you have no one to follow. So a practical point in taking responsibility for your own life is that you need someone to follow. You need someone to mentor you, to help you grow. And so I want to encourage you, if you see someone, something in someone else that you really like, then talk to them about it. If you see someone with a skill or even a gift in that you want to know more about, then get into the, um, the habit of starting to have conversations. Not talking about, I don't watch it, but Coronation Street or whatever, Netflix. Actually start saying, do you know what? I see something new that I want. How, like, how do you cultivate that in your life? What practical things do you do? And I've started doing that with people that I meet that I see a place where they are that I would love to be. And I start asking them, how have you got to this? What things do you put into your life on a daily basis? How do you fit in this? How do you fit in that? How, how do you communicate with your wife? How do you get the timing right with your job and your quiet time? What books are you reading that have encouraged you and built you up and have, have caused you to go further? How did you deal with this struggle in your life? Because I'm dealing with it right now. And I want to encourage you to find people that have it and ask them. People are going through it and talk to them. And I want to ask you again, how are you investing in your life? Do you know most of us here have probably thought about our career? You've probably spent more time in your career thinking, how am I going to get this or do this or be this? But how much have you thought, how am I going to invest in my own self, in my life, in my personal growth, in my spiritual growth, in the things that I love to do? And so what I want to ask you is, what are you investing in? Because it's your turn this time to be, have the best year of your life. And this isn't just some corny thing, if you're a Christian, all things go well, because they don't most of the time. But it's, our solid foundation of Jesus Christ crucified that shapes everything else that we go through, that we face. We become like the people that we admire and we follow. And you know, as a Christian, people are looking at you. People are watching you, which means you're a leader. And leaders always carry the burden of being an example. If you want to, it doesn't matter if you want it or not, when you accept Jesus, people will look at you and they'll either look at you and say, I don't want what they have, or look at you and go, my goodness, I need what they have. And so who are you following? Apart from the obvious, who are you following? Do you know that 90% of British people in the survey that was done like sticking with what they're familiar to? I just had this conversation with you. I'm going to Tenerife again this year. It's familiar. I like it. It's no worries. They like sticking with what they're familiar to. But when you accept Jesus... He's going to throw familiar out the door because he wants to do something unique and wonderful with you. And so he wants us to push the boundaries. He wants you to step out of your comfort zone. He wants you to be an example to others. Andrew Carnegie says this, as I get older I pay less attention to what men say and more on what they do. What are you doing with your mind with what comes out of your mouth, how you're processing, how you're communicating. Our doing is led completely through the Holy Spirit. And I'm finishing with this. Brian Heasley said, the first outpouring of the God's Spirit resulted in the propelling of its first recipients out into the marketplace. No, no mold, no model, just a stumbling band of disciples who had waited, allowed their lives to be interrupted, responded to the interruption, and had gone on an incredible journey. In those few moments, Pete gets, uh, Peter gets inspired. Strange languages are spoken. People are mistaken for drunks. The gospel is preached, and the lost are saved. The church's first day was a good one. It began with a simple preaching, but soon led to widows being fed, orphans being looked after, fields being sold, possessions shared, men traveling to other nations, and a general sense of transformed and active lives of faith. He's not so much into models. He just wants to know that once he's formed a foundation that you're ready to go on an adventure and building the rest on top of it. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you ready to be interrupted? Because being a good neighbor is birthed in a place on dependence on God. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14 in the message. Do you want to stand up? We're going to worship. It says this, Don't look for shortcuts to God. 
The marketplace is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. And so as I'm summing this up this morning, there's a quote that helps me do it, and it says that people often show God with their limbs, but when they leave the church, not with their lifestyle. And so it's really easy in here to raise our hands and to be full of God and to be kind and generous with our limbs. But as we leave that door, does our lifestyle show it? And that comment came out of a survey that was done asking people why they don't accept Jesus. And it was because people show with their limbs and not their lifestyle. And the same may be said of our thinking. Our thinking is going to come out in the way we live, the way we react, the way we communicate, the way we give, the encouragement we are, the generous hearts that we have. And so as we're singing this morning, we're going to sing an old song that I started singing in my quiet time this morning. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. And the reason I want to sing this is because I want to raise a banner of hope over our minds this morning as we're singing this. And I want us to be like our, our song in Exodus 50, the song of victory. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. And we start to declare over this place what God can do with our minds that can lead to what he can do with our physical bodies as the kingdom of heaven invades. So I want this to be a rally call this morning, a victory cry as we finish with this song and sing it together. And what I also want to do is get Neil and and Neville up here. And if you want us to pray over your mind as elders of the church, then we want to do that this morning and we want breakthrough. If there's something you're struggling with, we want to declare the glory of God over it. We want to declare the word of God over it. And we want to get people into a place where they understand the foundation that they're standing on. And we want to help you build it in a way that it will not be easily moved or shaken. Am I the only one gets excited about that, no? So let's sing, and I'm going I'm to stand up here, and don't feel embarrassed. Get yourself up here, and let's pray and see what God wants to do. Let's worship and declare this.